You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. The greatest analyst we ever had, truthfully. That is how this week's guest, Marty Peterson, was described to me by a distinguished former senior intelligence officer. By all accounts, Marty is a CIA analytic legend who went from an NCO in the Vietnam War to hold the number three and number four leadership positions at the CIA. He has had one-to-ones with four presidents, headed up major analytic units and helped train a whole generation of those folks who tried to piece together the jigsaw puzzle that is intelligence analysis. Marty is also a China expert, a country that has fascinated him since he was a kid playing with his Asian-American friends in Phoenix, Arizona. We discuss Asia, China, intelligence analysis and hear Marty's take and some important topical issues. This interview was so interesting and just so much fun. Marty's got a planet-sized brain and is an absolute blast. Enjoy. I want to dig into your career a little bit more and see what we can uncover. So I think I think an interesting place to start maybe is, I know that you're an Asia expert. So tell us, how did you first get interested in this huge and important region of the world? I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Believe it or not, there was a sizable Asian-American community there, uh, especially Japanese-Americans and Chinese-Americans. And I went to the school with these kids. I'd play at their houses and I'd go over there and they had these kind of strange pictures of, of relatives and, and artwork. And it was just always kind of intriguing to me. And actually, my mother had a role in it too. She was from Norway, but uh, when I was like 12... She bought me a small little book, which I still have, of uh, Chinese landscape paintings. And, and I, I looked at that, it was just kind of a fascinating vision for me. So I guess I'm a romantic at heart. The mystic Orient always had its attraction for me. As a boy, probably in high school, 12, 13 or something, when the atmosphere was right, you could actually get West Coast radio stations on your little clock radio by your bed. And KSFO in San Francisco had a program on Friday or Saturday nights, whatever. It started about 11 o'clock midnight. It was actually sponsored by Pan Am, Pan Am Airways. And, and so uh, they play light classical music. But in between, you were on Pan Am Clipper One. 
and they talked about flying from San Francisco to Honolulu and Honolulu to Guam. And uh, it just was all very romantic. And I loved it. When I started college, so I had this interest. I started college, I was going to be a lawyer. Okay. Everybody that's in political science is going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a lawyer. And I was working my way through college. I needed a, a poli-sci course that started very early in the morning, like 7.30 or so, so I could make my job by noon. And the only thing that was being offered at Arizona State, where I was going, was a, a course that was in uh, governments of communist Asia. And, and the professor, Dr. Joe, a Korean-American, became a mentor of mine. I got very interested and I took everything they had there. That led, I guess, over the next couple of years to a master's in Asian studies and eventually there into, into intelligence. I know that there was a there was a detour in there. You found yourself in Vietnam. What happened was I was I was going to be a, a, a college professor. Once I decided I wasn't going to be a lawyer, I was going to study Chinese government, Chinese and language, and whatnot. And Dr. Joe helped me get a grant to the East West Center in Honolulu, and that was a joint program at that point with State Department and University of Hawaii. And the idea was to take about three hundred Americans and maybe 900 Asians, and we'd be in a special school, and they would teach us to be Asian experts and teach the Asians to understand the United States and, and, and that sort of thing. So I was getting the master's, and halfway through that, I got drafted. So I did two years in the Army, a year in Vietnam as a NCO in the infantry. And by the time I got back on campus, I really couldn't see myself being a college professor. And so I needed to take another job, needed to find a job. And so I took the State Department exam. I passed that. And I was waiting around to uh, uh, hear what the next steps were when a friend of mine who had been in Air Force Intelligence in Thailand came up to me and said, Marty, there's these other guys you need to talk to. And I said, what are you talking about? And he says, here, it's CIA. He says, I think they'd be interested in somebody like you. Let me put you together with a contact. And one thing led to another. So from there, uh, I made contact. They contacted me. I went through the interview process, and I ultimately got offered a job and went. So I need to say thank you, Ralph. You know who you are. I don't think I ever thanked you, but if you ever listening to this, you know that you're the one that helped me make that very important decision. <laughs> and I want to come back to your career in CIA later. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why I wanted to discuss that was I wondered if your time in Vietnam intersected with your interest in Asia. I never thought that my first Asian experience would be in a combat zone when I started the uh, master's program in Chinese history and, and, and whatnot. I knew that when I, when I got out of the Army and I wasn't going to be a college professor, I still had the great interest in Asia, had served there. I got to know some of the people there a little bit, tremendously respecting the culture and, and what they were going through and whatnot. And I knew I wanted to use that expertise. And so as I began to look at job opportunities that uh, weren't going to lead me down the academic road, certainly State Department was the first thing that occurred to me. I took a look at possibly uh, journalism, and then Ralph turned up in my life, and, and that guided me that way. China was always my passion. Throughout my career, I worked on all of, all of Asia, Southeast Asia for a while, uh, a lot of work on Japan and Korea. But China was my passion. It's still my uh, I guess it's my hobby. I, I try and follow it from a distance. Just to finish off your on your experience in Vietnam. I didn't fit in. I was a little bit older. Okay. <laughs> Matter of fact, I went through basic training. Everybody got orders at, at the end of basic training, except for me. They didn't know what to do with me. You were gone to another school or something. 
they sent me home for a week. <laughs> and I came back to this basic training company I was in and found out that I was now the clerk in charge of running basic training. <laughs> so I was basically Radar O'Reilly. And my experience in Vietnam uh, was with the Adjutant General Corps. We did a lot of investigations into various issues, some of them very serious. Had a little time on the line, not a lot, but it made me feel for the people, understand what they were going through and what Americans were going through as well, too. Tell us a little bit more about the interest that you have. Again, I said it was kind of a romantic interest to start with, and then it became an academic interest. So I started as a young China analyst. I was a young China political analyst at, at CIA working on internal politics. That led eventually to a overseas posting that dealt with China for the agency. So I spent a couple of years uh, living in an Asian environment, and it kind of deepened my appreciation and understanding. Even today, I do a lot of reading on uh, Asia and China. My passion, actually, if I've got one, is kind of the history of Shanghai as a city from 1840 to 1951. Sitting here in my office, I think along one wall is a, a list of books and that sort of thing. It must be 250 books or something, wow. memoirs and stuffing on, uh, on, on Shanghai. It was a very, very interesting period, very important period for development of Chinese nationalism and Chinese history and the interplay between East and West. Uh, the history is not always, generally is not a very happy or pleasant one, but it's a, I just find it a fascinating thing and study. And I don't know when the last time was you were at the Spy Museum, but we've actually got a knife that belonged to uh, Sykes from the, the Sykes and Fairbairn fighting knife. And yes, they were to, yes, yes. They were yeah. two policemen in Shanghai, right? Right, right. And he chained the OSS. One of the books on my wall back here is his memoir. Oh, it is? Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, we've got his knife. Help us understand what it was like to be you in 1989. So I'm not talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall. I'm talking about Tiananmen Square. Because yeah. I know that that was quite a big moment in the history of, of modern China. Sketch a scene out for us. Where were you? What were you doing? How did you experience yeah. and live through well, those I events? Was, um, I was actually the deputy director of the Office of East Asian Analysis, which is responsible for all the analysis on Asia. I just completed a rotational assignment in the Office of Training and Education trying to develop analytic training courses in tradecraft. I did that for a year and I came back. And the first day back in was 10 on man. For our listeners, there's kind of a long convoluted walk up to that that I'm not going to go through. But needless to say, that when Deng Xiaoping really began to consolidate his reforms and move China in the direction that it's still moving today, although under different leadership, it created a lot of issues. It created a lot of social tensions, created a lot of opportunities, but there was also dissent within the party, with the military, people were getting richer, some were getting poor and whatnot. Okay, all this continues to, to bubble along. One of the men that was most active and interested in political reform as well as economic reform, which is what Deng was principally interested in, was a man named Huya Bang. And uh, through the course of advance, about four or five years, six years before Tiananmen, uh, he was purged from the party. There was a falling out. But he was sort of a, a, a hero to the youth. When he died on April 15th, 1989, there was a spontaneous demonstration in 
Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Literally tens of thousands of people gathered there, started laying wreaths and that sort of thing. The party was very disturbed, very worried about this. At the same time, it's important to remember that communism was collapsing in Eastern Europe. So this looked very frightening to them. And over the course of about a month and a half, there were several interactions between the students and the leadership, all of which were handled badly. Students ratcheted up the tensions with a hunger strike. The leadership decided they needed to do something. Finally, in May, Deng Xiaoping orders martial law, orders troops into the square. Thousands die. We don't know to this day how many. The Tiananmen demonstrations were crushed. Now, what was significant about this is there was a lot of media contact going on at that time. They were looking at Eastern Europe and applying it to China. And so there was a lot of commentary about maybe this is the end of the regime. This is true democracy coming in, that sort of thing. Those of us on the intelligence side had a very different view. We were saying from day one, it's going to end badly if the students don't get out of the, uh, out of the square. This is a regime that will not hesitate to use violence because they see this as a direct and deep security threat. This was uh, the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. President Bush, who had been director of CIA, ambassador to China, UN ambassador, I think his status is going to go up as a president over the years, his handling of the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and all of that. That administration also, I think, initially believed that perhaps there was a happy ending to this. And uh, one of the things we were able to do as intelligence analysts is convince them that we didn't think so. And so their focus changed. It changed from kind of watching events to beginning to think, how are we going to protect the Americans in China and in Beijing and that sort of thing? What challenges is this going to present for the United States and our China relationship and that sort of thing? It was a tragedy for the Chinese students. I think it's a turning point in modern Chinese history in part because I think it makes it much more difficult for any kind of political reform to happen down the way. But it was also a very important victory, a term I use with big quotations, Mark, around uh, intelligence analysis because we were able to focus administration on the issues that they should have been focused on, and, and, and they were able to do quite a bit to protect Americans as a result. Was there anything that was surprising to you, or did it go the way that you thought it was going to go? Or? We saw the tensions building within the leadership for a long time, back to 79. I mean, we had pretty good in, insights into, into the tensions and that sort of thing. And the party itself, you know, Dung was clearly making the decisions. He was the guy in charge. But there were factions within the party. There was, there was a kind of a liberal faction of identified with Hu Yaobang. There was a more conservative faction that identified with the party elders. The military weren't particularly happy because one of the deals that Deng made as he pushed his economic reforms was telling the military, look, you're not going to benefit from this immediately. We're going to build the economy. We're going to get this thing running right. And in about 10 years, then you're going to start seeing the investment in, in military things. So there was a lot of grumping going along then. The Gang of Four were gone, but then they had a, another crisis with what they called the Little Gang of Four. And so we were charting all of this. So we knew the tensions were there. We saw the pressures building in society. We had pretty good access to uh, segments of Chinese society. Then the bilateral relationship was pretty good. So our diplomats were out talking to people. Military attaches were out talking to people. The media was more open. It was still controlled. A lot of interaction with Hong Kong, people going in and out, able to observe. We felt like we had a pretty good grip on what the dynamic was. 
there's always the question, of course, well, how's it going to play out? There was actually a point, I think, probably late April, when there was a chance for it to um, all cool down, students leave the square, and then there would have been quiet arrests and the rest of it, but partly through the mishandling of the party, partly through actions by the students, uh, tensions did not ratchet down, they ratcheted up, and that ultimately led to the confrontation. Given your lifelong interest and passion for China, I feel like it would be a missed opportunity if I didn't ask you what your current take is on on China, US-Chinese relations, in fact, just the whole geopolitics of of the Asia-Pacific region. Yeah, Uh, you know. Small subject, I I know. (laughs) Well, I think um, I'm concerned by, by what I see happening there. Every administration going back probably to Jimmy Carter, and I actually came on duty in in Nixon 1, so (laughs) um, has always said, no, we have to pay more attention to Asia. We're going to pivot toward Asia. I once had a young analyst ask me, Marty, do you think this administration is really going to pivot to Asia? I said, yes, they're going to pivot to Asia, but what you got to remember is there's an off-ramp to the Middle East. You know, they never seem to get there. (laughs) And um, as I look at China and as I look at Asia right now, I think in the simplest terms, China is challenging the United States, challenging the United States, not only for leadership in the region, but if you take a look at what they're doing with some of the other things, you could probably expand that to a global challenge as well. People with a long history, a long memory, they talk about a century of humiliation. That is over. China has stood up. They're going to resume not a new place in the world, but their rightful place in the world. And their rightful place in the world is... China as the Middle Kingdom, I truly believe they think that, and Asia ought to be pivoting around what Beijing thinks. It's not a puppet relationship, but if you're in Tokyo or Seoul or Hanoi or someplace else, before you engage in any activities with the United States or others, you better think seriously about whether or not Beijing would be happy with that. And if you take a look at the recent talks in Alaska, I think they were very chilling. This is a leadership in Beijing that I think is aggressive, they're arrogant, and they're prone to push. Now, every new administration that has come in, including back to the Reagan administration, the Chinese, generally within the first six months, and it's true this time, has found some way to challenge the United States, particularly on the one China policy. You know, it's whether it's over arms sales to uh, Taiwan or the P3 incident with Bush 43 or something. So maybe what we're seeing in Alaska, it's just typical behavior. But I do think there's more behind it than that. I think there's more of a determination, more of a plan than there was before. Now, I don't move in policy circles anymore, Andrew. But if I did and I were asked, what should we do? And I've given a fair amount of thought to this. I'd say, well, look, Mr. President, Mr. National Security Advisor, Mr. Secretary of State, or whoever, I think you have to start by asking and then answering three questions. And the first is, what kind of relationship do you want with China? And it can't be something like cooperative and peaceful. It's got to be something specific. Exactly what are you looking for in that relationship? The second question is tougher. What Chinese actions are acceptable or unacceptable to us? 
How much of an issue do we want to make of Hong Kong or Uyghurs or human rights? I, for one, am deeply concerned about Beijing's cyber activities. I'm also concerned about aggressive behavior toward Taiwan and in the South China Sea. And the United States, I'm not advocating drawing a red line or, or something like that, but we've got to sit down and decide what we can live with and what we can't live with. The third question is, and I think this is really critical too, is what can we do to strengthen our relations with our allies and partners in Asia? And I really do think that that's diplomatic and it's military as well. Certainly at the top of the list is Australia, Japan, South Korea. Have to do some hard thinking about Taiwan, particularly given Beijing's actions, and Vietnam as well, too. It's easy for, uh, for me to pose those questions. Answering them, of course, cuts across a lot of interests, not only just foreign policy interests, but U.S. economic interests, domestic politics, priorities, and there's trade-offs in all of those. So they're easy questions to ask, but uh, hard ones to answer, particularly when you've got to navigate politics to get there as well, Andrew. Yeah. I just want to go back on a couple of things you sure. said. So, so for our listeners that aren't up with this, what are the talks in Alaska and what just happened? Just a brief summary. Well, apparently there was, a, it was supposed to be a getting to know you session. And all I know is what little I've seen in the press. My understanding is the National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State went in and did kind of a brief presentation, very diplomatic and that sort of thing. And their Chinese counterpart went into a harangue far longer than it was supposed to, basically accused the U.S. of human rights violations, saying that our model of democracy is no longer uh, applicable to most of the world. And uh, I guess if I boil it down to a sentence, uh, the the takeaway would be, uh, you're the past, we're the future, you just got to live with it. What are the drivers of China's foreign policy? Is it communist party doctrine? Mm -hmm. Is it muscular nationalism? Or is it just good old-fashioned power politics? Uh, A mix of the last two. It's the Communist Party, but they're they're not practicing it, okay? If they were, there'd be a lot less trouble, actually. Maybe we want to encourage them to go in that direction. I don't know. Um, I think the leadership has a dilemma. Their ability to rule as a single party and to have no opposition rests on three pillars. One is, we're communist, we're the future, history's going our way. The second is we're providing for the economic welfare of the Chinese people. The third is we're protecting Chinese interests and reestablishing China's rightful place in the world. Well, the communism pillar is gone. They're doing great economically, but there's a lot of people out there that are more expert than I am that that think they're on a bubble. And certainly there's a lot of issues with uh, climate, distribution of wealth, markets, in Asia and, and, and whatnot. So maybe the economy goes on forever. Maybe it doesn't. But that leaves the third one, protecting and projecting China as a world leader. And if you go back to kind of classic Chinese foreign policy, it was the old tribute system. So the idea was the emperor sat in Beijing and there were all these other little states all around China 
they would always look to China. They would come to Beijing. They would offer gifts. The emperor would say thank you, and he would give them greater gifts, and then they would go away. But China was kind of the center of the world until it all collapsed in the 1840s, 1830s, 1840s, and, and, and on forward. So they see themselves as natural leaders. And China has never been aggressive, territorial aggressive power, although certainly you're going to get an argument in, uh, in Xinjiang, you're going to get an argument in Tibet and a lot of other places. But basically what they, they mostly relied on is knowledge or acknowledgement of their superiority and their right to lead. And originally that was Asia, and I think increasingly they see themselves in a global role in that matter. Okay. And I think probably they perceive, as a lot of others do, a certain weakness in the United States over the last 10, 15, 20 years, whatever. And it's not just the last administration. It goes back before that, that uh, maybe we can be had, if not militarily, at least in a global leadership sense. I don't want to be too inside baseball, but it seems to me that if you look at contemporary China, nothing would more accurately foretell the dissolution of the current party than a Marxist analysis because the, <laughs> because the economic uh, basis of production is now completely out of kilter with the political superstructure and in Marxism, <laughs> economics drives politics, right? Yeah, yeah, they... Uh, <laughs> um... It was interesting when uh, when Deng started pushing his reforms in the late 70s, early 80s, and he was really taking them in this direction. You know, the black cat, white cat, who cares what color the cat is as long as it catches mice. It's the old Chinese thing. A lot in the party didn't want to go forward. They actually wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to the early years of the regime. So 49 to 53, 55 everything before the Great Leap when things really started going off the tracks and Mao started pushing his extreme agendas that ultimately led to the Cultural Revolution and, and all the other issues. So this leadership is really bought into uh, the Western economic model. <laughs> Although they, they will not tell you that. And, uh, and they're pretty darn good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and just one more question on China, and then mm -hmm. we'll, we'll come back to your career in the CIA, which is really rich and varied, and I, I really want to make sure that we have some time for that. So the final question on China is, how much is the current regime antagonistically opposed to democracy as a system of government? Is it just a case of, we don't really care what your system of government is. If you let us do what we want to do, then we'll work with you. We don't like democracy for us. Okay, uh, us being China and in, in, in this sense. So, you know, how you want to rule, I think in their heart of hearts, we don't care. As long as you recognize our pride of place and don't create problems for us going where we want to go. So unlike the, you know, the old common turn or whatever, I don't think they're on a crusade to replace democracy with uh uh, socialism or communism and uh, advance to a worker's paradise or, or whatever. It just doesn't, it just doesn't figure in that. What they are arguing in their competition for global leadership is that your model, the United States, doesn't work anymore. That worked really well post-World War II 
last century, but look at the mess you're in now. And uh, look at us, our model of, uh, I don't know what it is, uh, status capitalism, communism with a Marxist overlay and toast on the side or something. You ought to be taking your lead from us. And certainly when you see the One Belt and, and, and the One Road program, they're, they're, they are working very hard to propagate the notion that their model for development and their model of rule is one that would work best for most most other places. It doesn't necessarily have to be worried about China propagating a communist ideology and where it's engaging around the world. It's not like the Soviet Union in Angola or Mozambique or something. No, no, I don't. I, I, I don't see it that way. Now I'm, I'm uh, kind of out of touch, but I see it more like China has stood up. We need to be recognized as maybe the largest economy in the world, certainly one of the biggest military powers of the world, and we need to be treated accordingly, and our views ought to be respected as a result. And if you don't want to do that, then you have to realize that there's going to be certain consequences for antagonizing Beijing. It was really uh, great to talk to you last Friday when you were out in your back garden with a, cig <laughs> a, cigar, a cigar and a martini. And we've reached that point in the interview where it's time to grab the martini <laughs> and uh, get the cigar cutter out. So <laughs> I wondered if we could look back to your career in CIA. And two things that I want to particularly focus on is moments where your Asia expertise or passion were used and then your leadership and whether it be in terms of rising to become the third most powerful <laughs> figure in CIA or whether it be as a mentor to people like Mike Morell or whether it be just yeah. training analysts. So, so a lot of analysts that are out there you will have had some impact on their career. So I wondered if we could just uh, go back to, you've joined the CIA, yeah. like walk us through the rest of your journey. Okay, I um, I came in in, a, 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 in 1972, shortly after the Earth crew. The program I entered in was something called the Career Training Program. And it was an elite program that the agency had. There were two classes a year. There were about 25 of us in each class. And basically, what we did is we trained together for five or six months. And at the end of that, you chose whether you wanted to go into the director of operations. These are the guys that recruit spies, run agents, and that sort of thing, or go into analysis. And uh, because of my personality and background and bent, I opted for analysis. Very few of us did out of that class. Uh, there was one other individual, actually, who, who opted for uh, analysis, I think you know my very good friend, Deputy Director of CIA, John McLaughlin. We entered on duty at the same day and we retired one week apart. There was a big, big training program, as you would expect, to learn to do espionage. There was none, really, for analysis. It was more of an orientation, how processes work, how something gets out of your typewriter and out the door, and a lot of orientation to going around and meeting colleagues around the agency and the community. But then you were just kind of thrown off the deep end. I will tell you, uh, Andrew, that when I got on the desk, even with my China background as a China analyst and that sort of thing, I struggled mightily for a year and a half. My first two managers were not 
very good teachers or mentors, nothing against them. It just wasn't their nature or, or, or expectation even. The thought was to the degree that there was one at the agency on training this time is analysts can do anything. Just give him a stack of documents. He reads them. He, he does this and that. It, it's a journalism approach. And so I realized I was smart enough to realize that I was failing. And so I began to look at analysts who were succeeding and tried to study how they were writing, what they were doing and that sort of thing. And over time, I figured it out. And two experiences came from this. One, I vowed, and I do mean vow, that if I ever became a manager, no one who ever worked for me would go through the experience that I went through. I would do everything I could to mentor, to train, to pour what I know into them. And Mike Morell was either one of the sufferers or the one of the benefactors of that. The second thing was that I think in, in late 1986, I, I wrote a, an article for the in-house CIA journal, Studies and Intelligence. And the title was Managing and Teaching New Analysts. I guess come to be regarded as a, as a classic. So I had this interest in, in, in analytic tradecraft, developing analysts. And I'm happy to say that uh, a lot of the people that I mentored went on to bigger and better things later on. When John McLaughlin, when he was deputy director for intelligence, he had this problem. George Tennant, who was the director, said, I want a, an analytic training regimen for analysts that's as good as what we're doing for operations officers. John really didn't know what to do. And I had some thoughts on this. I was running East Asia and, and Latin America at that time. And he called me and said, would you come up here and be my deputy and try and put this program together? There were already some good work being done on it. But then I went up there and the work I did with others became the Sherman Kent School for Intelligence Analysis and, and what is now the foundational training program for analysts at CIA, the career analyst program. So if I had an impact on intelligence, other than the, the work that we did on the issues and that sort of thing, I, I, I suspect my greatest contribution, most lasting contribution would be my role in uh, uh, mentoring those people and, and building that program. And tell us a little bit more about how both of those came about, the career okay. analyst program, um, how long is sure. it, what does it involve? Okay. For listeners who, who don't know, Sherman Kent, for whom the school is named, is the father of, of modern intelligence analysis. He was a professor at Yale, served with the OSS in World War II, worked at CIA for a long, long time as director of national intelligence estimates, very much respected. Would you actually like to know how Sherman Kent School got its name? Sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. So John calls me up <laughs> and we're sitting there and he says, look, George wants this, uh, what's this program? He wants this program that's uh, like what we got for operations, but he wants it for analysts. I said, okay. And the operator programs had some pretty classic names. They were named after classic uh, 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 case officers, the, the Helm Center and the Keys Walter Center and that sort of thing. I said, okay, okay. What is George calling this thing? Well, well he's calling it DI College. And I looked at John and I said, DI College? You mean the DO operations has Helms and Kieswalter and the DI has Dick? <laughs> so, sometimes you've actually got to look at these acronyms, you know? And he said, you know, what, what, what would you call it? And I said, well, I think we ought to name it after Sherman Kent. So that was the origin that family agreed in there. Okay, so I think this is the spring of 2000. And analytic training really hadn't progressed much since I entered on duty in 72. And the Office of Training and Education actually had some pretty good 
elements of what that program should be, but it was not a, a dedicated, integrated program. And I knew what I wanted in a career analyst program. I wanted it to be foundational analytic learning, but more than training about analytic methods and tradecraft. I wanted it to have, and it does have, segments on mission, ethics, values, collaboration, everything that's required to make an intelligence analysis unit work. And I wanted there to be exercises in there, exercises that went just beyond analytic challenges, but would replicate the pressures that analysts would face over a career, the uncertainty, uh, the second guessing, and, and the rest of it. Now, I think the initial program ran about five months, and it involved some travel as well. And I will tell you, uh, Andrew, that the line managers at first were not only skeptical, they were cool to this idea. And and I could understand that because I'd been a line manager up until this point as well, too. And we were terribly shorthanded. And we're finally getting new people in the door. And their point of view was, oh, you're going to take this person away from me five, five months? What are you going to do? I, I need them now. And I said, well, look, if you give them to me for five months, I guarantee that when they get them back, they're going to be able to hit the ground running. And they're going to be able to make a meaningful contribution to your mission sooner. Now, they still needed seasoning. First-line managers had to do the mentoring and the developing, but they were going to do it from a much stronger foundation. Now, the program has evolved a lot over the last 20 years. Uh, I'm not even really sure what's all in it these, but I still believe it's a gold standard in analytic training. And it's certainly been copied throughout the intelligence community. I know DIA looked at it, National Carrier, Counterterrorism Center. I'm proud of that. They've gone on and developed a lot of other programs it really does give analysts, I think, an appreciation, not only of what they need to know in terms of techniques, but the mission, the foundations, the purpose, the dedication, and the rest of it. Help people that don't have any background in the IC understand a little bit more about what it takes to make a good intelligence analyst. Are they are they born? Are they made? Can you spot one at a distance? Can you smell one? Uh, <laughs> I suppose you have to start, as you do with most things, whatever, it's with a certain aptitude. And, and in the case of intelligence analysis, I think this includes intellectual curiosity, very strong communication skills, and particularly the ability to see the world through the other guy's eyes, to understand a foreign culture, how they think, how they operate, how they make decisions. But there's also basic analytic tradecraft. It's got to be taught and mastered. I mean, you have to understand the strengths and weaknesses of various collection systems human reporting, satellite photography, uh, intercepted communications, documents, denial and deception techniques, all the sorts of things that are, are treated so expertly well at the International Spy Museum. Now, I came in with a strong foundation in Asian studies and, and Chinese language, and, and that gave me a leg up for being a China analyst. But what I quickly learned when I got on the desk is that intelligence analysis really required a layer of expertise that went two or three times deeper than that. In college, the papers that I wrote were all about institutions. It was the party, the government, military. When you got on a desk at CIA as an analyst, all of a sudden, it's mostly about people, individuals in those institutions that are making those decisions. And so you need to have a whole new level of expertise and understanding of their personal history if you're going to make judgments about how they're going to react to certain U.S. initiatives going forward. I think 
the qualities of a good intelligence analyst, or certainly that curiosity, the ability to, to put pieces together, to ask the right question. But I do think you also need great flexibility and you need a real tolerance for ambiguity. The comparison has been made by others. I've made it, John McLaughlin has made it. It's a bit like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, only you don't have all the pieces, you don't have the box top, just for fun, somebody's thrown in a bunch of other pieces that don't even belong there. So it's really a matter of building up knowledge, building up expertise. And the other thing that's really important, I think, too, uh, about intelligence analysis is it's not static. Not static in the sense, Andrew, that if the U.S. does something, somebody else is going to do something which is going to cause somebody else to do something. And so the answer I give you today, based on where we are today, may be very different than the answer I'm going to give you two weeks or three weeks from now when other things have happened. Does that mean I'm wrong today? Not necessarily. What I'm trying to do today is give you the best answer I can to the questions that you're you're grappling with, with the information and time available. And what I need to be able to do as an analyst is step back and say, okay, where are we? Where are we going? What's changed? How does this affect where the U.S. wants to be? And how is it likely to affect the other guy? It's a dynamic thing. And, and I will tell you as an intelligence <laughs> officer, the biggest mystery that you're going to have to grapple with is what your own government is doing, <laughs> okay? You know, we're much better at reading what's going on in Beijing than sometimes we are uh, what's going on uh, inside the uh, the West Wing. And, and there was no greater case of that in my career than uh, the Nixon overture to China and Kissinger's secret trip, which I guess maybe a couple of people at CIA knew about, but nobody in the China shop did. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. If someone's out there and they want to become an intelligence analyst, like, I mean, other than filling out the paperwork and, and <laughs> you know, applying, like, what advice would you give them? Like, should they should they start boning up on intelligence analysts now? Or would you say, no, well, don't do that. Go away and read Sufi poetry or do something else? Here's my bias. Okay. I came out of a, a area studies program and they just don't really exist anymore. They were kind of a product of the Cold War. Because that's my experience, I believe very strongly that where you need to start with is a deep understanding of the history and the culture, the language of whatever area that you're working on. You can't understand the Middle East unless you understand Islam, okay, or, or and the difference between Shia and Sunni. 
and the history of the plays and the role of the tribes and all the rest of it. You can't understand China unless you understand what they've been through. Our job, I believe, as analysts, at the end of the day, comes down to helping our fellow understand how the other person sees the world. And by that, I mean how he sees the situation, what things he thinks about U.S. intentions and capabilities, his tolerance for risk, and what constitutes an acceptable outcome in his eyes. We have to understand that. We have to be able to communicate that to U.S. policymakers, because if they don't understand it, they have no idea how their policies or actions are going to be received or whether or not they're going to be affected. So I think you start with those kinds of things. Now, there's a number of college programs that have come up in the last decade or so that I think have gone a long way toward trying to create an intelligence, if not degree, certificate. I think that's helpful. I think that's helpful because it helps people that are interested in intelligence understand what the life is really like, what some of the difficulties are, what successes and failures are. But I think what you start with is a, a deep interest in a particular subject or area. You try and get as smart as you can on that. You continue to do that after you're at the agency or wherever you're going. It's just like being a doctor. You know, you, you graduate from med school, but new techniques and new information comes in. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go on an eye that's going to let blood. I would like to you go to a guy that's actually going to run a real <laughs> test or something. You know, you need to do that. And you mentioned to me at one point, and, and, and maybe I'll preempt your question or, or come to it before you had attention to visit, you know, Looking back on your career, uh, hindsight, what advice would I give to a young Marty Peterson coming in the door? And uh, and it is with the you wisdom stole my of all, thunder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This uh, all this gray hair. I guess I would tell them, tell that young person maybe three things. One, and this is something to always keep in the back of your mind because it goes right to the core of the mission. The risk of being wrong is always going to be with you. And the consequences of getting it wrong only increase. So you need to be strict in your tradecraft and honest in your own assessment of your own work. That's the first thing. The second, I think the best safeguard against being wrong is to periodically ask yourself three questions. The first is, where am I most vulnerable to error in my analysis? Not how confident I am. You ask any analyst how confident they are, they'll tell you, well, I'm an expert. I've looked at stuff, caveat my judgments, you know. But if you ask them, where are we on the weakest analytic ground? Where do we need to be most cautious in the judgments that we're making? You get a different answer. And I think the answer that needs to be paid attention to. The second one is a really powerful one. What am I not seeing that I should be seeing? if my line of analysis is correct. The last one, this is maybe at the root of more intelligence failures than anything else. And what I would tell this young Marty Peterson is, is, look, if you ever find yourself saying or thinking, it makes no sense for them to do that, what you've got is a pretty clear indication that they see the situation different than you do. And what you need to do is Sit back and ask yourself, under what circumstances might it make sense for them to do that? The last thing I do is I say, look, if you're only going to read one book on intelligence analysis, 
I would read Why Intelligence Fails by Professor Robert Jervis, who I think is at Columbia or was. It's the best single book I've ever read on the challenges of intelligence. He looks specifically at that fall of the Shah of Iran and Iraq WMD as case studies and what, what can go right and, and, and what can go wrong. I have just tremendous respect for the man. Tell us about that experience of running these major analytic units. What's that like? It's all about people at the end of the day. The structure in offices, at least when I was there, and the structure has changed now. They've got these centers. But Office of East Asian Analysis, you would have a director, a deputy director. Then you would have divisions, generally geographic below there. So there might be a, a China one and a North Asia one and a Southeast Asia one or whatever. But then you would have smaller units that would be focused on specific issues and or countries. So on China, you would probably have somebody, uh, a unit following military developments, one following economic developments, one on politics, one on international relations. If it's a real small country, Southeast Asia, you probably have a small team of analysts that are following Indonesia or the Philippines. Okay, the key to providing a service, and that's what we do, is understanding what issues the policymaker is grappling with. And one of the things that changed in the 80s, much for the better, was an energetic effort on the part of the agency to put more analysts in touch with their consumers. Part of that was briefings, You've all heard of the President's Daily Brief. That's the most serious, senior level. Actually, the more important ones were the working levels at state and defense and NSC, because they were the ones that were going to tee the issues up for deputies and principal committee meetings where policy was actually going to think. So the fact that we started sending people down there to meet with them, talk with them, find out what the issues were uh, that they were dealing with, then you come back and say, okay, what questions should they be asking? in addition to the ones that they are asking. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what they ought to know if they're going to be grappling with this. And then you begin to do the research, you begin to, to, to think through the issues. Some of it gets done in current intelligence, which is done daily. Generally, it's a fast reaction to some sort of breaking event. We did a lot of long, more thoughtful papers, things like the Outlook for Deng's Economic Reforms, the Future of U.S.-China Relations, that sort of thing. Basically, it comes down to answering four questions, I think. You're not doing analysis if you're only answering the first two. You're doing reporting. What's going on and why is it going on? That's what reporters do. Analysis gets down to answering the next two. What does it mean and what can be done to affect the course of events? And that's where the hard thinking and the hard writing and the hard analysis so I would bring uh, um, a new analyst on, even as office director. Uh, I tried to meet with all the new analysts personally, one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm talking about an office that sometimes had three, 400 people in it. So, you know, and, and I made a habit of walking around. We're kind of scattered all over the building and between buildings and that sort of thing because I thought it was important to see the leader. Because the analysts pay attention to what the boss pays attention to. And if you're taking Chinese and language lessons and they see me humiliated every morning by my Chinese language teacher, then they're less afraid to go take language lessons as well. If they see me walking around and talking to my Latin American analysts, 
and asking questions, being in the receive mode. So they're educating me so I can better represent their views and understand the issues. Then they have a respect for the tradecraft and for having depth of analytic expertise. I always made a point of talking to them about what they were doing, what they were reading. I talked to them before and after each time they had a temporary duty assignment overseas or travel, or if they had a rotational assignment down to a policy shop or in another office. I always asked the same question. What did you learn? Not what did you do? You've got to take the interest in folks. Now, did I have people that couldn't do the job? Yes. So what do you do? You start by trying to help them. Identify what the issues are. See if you can't get some training or guidance or more mentoring and that sort of thing. But some people are just not cut out to be analysts. At that point, then I would, uh, I had a heart to heart with them. Are you happy? Is this really what you want to do? I'm not sure that your future in this line of work is bright. Let me help you get someplace else where you can make a difference and where you will be happy within the building. I was very successful at that. I had uh, one analyst uh, who was very, very good on technical issues, but whose writing skills were not very good, in part because English was a second language, I think. After a while, we talked, and I got this individual a rotation into one of our analytic shops that does analysis technical systems. And she hit a home run. She could look at these things, she could brief it, and she ended up being a very senior officer. We attempt to put a lot of uh, round pegs in square holes. And so part of being a good manager is finding the right role. I think I was pretty good at that. The other thing I did was uh, always help somebody get to the next job or the next Position. I hated to lose good people, but I never wanted to be in a position where I was standing in their way. As a matter of fact, I wanted a reputation, and I think I had it, that if you go, go to work for this difficult individual, <laughs> people go on and do better things, and he'll help you get there. And so I think I had a reputation as a mentor and a developer of analysts. One of them, it seems to me that, I mean, for any institution, but especially for intelligence analysts, how... You want people that are experienced in one area to stick around because mm -hmm. over the years you pick up a lot of knowledge. But sure. on the other hand, you don't want you want the institution and its culture and ideas to be oxygenated. You want some circulation of of blood coming through. So right. how do you balance that? Other than like staff turnover, is there that seems like a difficult thing to do and. Frankly, most analysts after a while come and tell you, I'm, I'm tired of working this account. And you got to say, okay, what would you like to do? One of the things that happened over the course of my career, I was very fortunate because it was very, very rare to have an overseas assignment as an analyst. Matter of fact, I was the first one to do that in the particular place where I was sent working China issues. Now it's much more common. That was one of the things we also did with the Sherman Kent School. Part of that program was to embed more analysts in other government agencies, uh, defense, state, treasury, to work as officers in 
those agencies. So when they came back, they had a broader perspective of the policy process. They understood how these people work and, and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of opportunities now for analysts to serve overseas, to get out of line analysis and do something else akin to it. Give them that break. And so that when they come back, they come back to the same area. I would hope they would necessarily, not the same account. They come back refreshed and they come back with a perspective that they didn't have. I had uh, a couple of analysts, one who leading expert on, on, on Japan, and that's all this individual wanted to do his entire career. And I was fine with that. Okay. Uh, there were others that wanted to move around a lot. That was okay too. Sometimes they came back to me, often they did not. Sometimes they went up and did staff positions in the editorial process within the directory or went into public affairs or, or to the IG staff or to congressional affairs. Some went over into operations. And so you bring in new people. You maintain the core, a core, not necessarily the core, but a core, and you bring in new people. When they decide they need to do something else, you help them do that. Because the last thing you want is a disgruntled employee sitting there bitching about working on Burma for 15 years or something. You know what I mean? That, uh, uh, and there's people that are really passionate about Burma, by the way. It's a fascinating place. And certainly when counterterrorism opened up as it did after, after 9-11 and that sort of thing, it created a lot of opportunities for analysts to work geographic areas, but from a very different perspective and, and have a different kind of experience, much tighter with operations. One of my favorite books, The Mask of Command uh, by John Keegan, he talks about the writing of U.S. Grant and how it was so, it was very difficult not to understand what Grant wanted you to understand just by the way that he wrote. So is there a particular style of writing? Yeah. Uh, how much diversity is encouraged? You know, do we, do we sometimes well, want someone that's going to carry you along with similes and metaphors or should it all just be well to the uh, point scientific kind of dry writing or help us understand that well there's different formats okay so so there, there's something called current intelligence president's daily brief these are very short generally one page sometimes a half a page three quarters of a page because these people are extremely busy and they're not going to have time to push through five or six pages we had one very, very senior secretary in administration I won't mention that uh, when we had the longer articles in the back of the PDB, if they went over two pages, he wouldn't he'd stop reading. He says, this isn't for me. I haven't got time to digest this. You know, you got to get this down to something that I can, I can really use. And I think analysts have to understand that the most precious commodity in Washington, D.C. is not secrets or information. Everybody's got that. It's time. It's time. The future in Washington, D.C., its longest is four years, and every day it's a day short. And these people work tremendous hours, 18 or better hours, seven days a week. Then you've got the longer papers, and the longer papers are basically, I think, for us. They capture institutional knowledge. They help us probe things, lay out what we know and what we don't know. But I think the most useful thing are, are either answers to questions that we get from PDB readers or senior policymakers that we turn around in, in, in 24 hours. And basically, they ask a specific question and you, you answer that, that question. So uh, the art form, if you will, is bottom line up front. Here's the one thing you need to take away from this piece 
even if you don't read anything other than the first paragraph, which better not be more than two sentences. From there, you begin to provide the background and the details so they have a deeper understanding of, of the takeaway point. It's very much sentence, bullet, bullet, sentence, bullet, bullet. And if you've got a briefer there delivering it, then that individual is there to take follow-up questions, but also provide detail. And when I was doing briefings for uh, Bush 43 in a transition period in Texas, I would go into our secure facility in Austin about 3.30 in the morning and begin prepping for an eight o'clock briefing. I would go through everything that came in from headquarters. So I'd have the president's daily brief for that day that was going to uh, Clinton. I would have a lot of intelligence traffic that I would then go through with an idea of what would be of interest to a president-elect and put together supplementary materials for them. And then I would go in and I would tee up the briefing and I would give him the book and I would say, you know, Mr. President-elect, first piece is on uh, China or Iran or or uh, this is a European rela- uh, reaction to your uh, election. And he would look at it. He might ask me a couple of questions. And I said, well, you know, I, I got a couple other things here if you'd like to see these. I have some intelligence reporting. He said, yeah, yeah leave that or don't leave that. And, and so you're there to kind of fill in the gaps. But the writing has to be incredibly crisp, incredibly short. They just don't have the time. And this is true for all presidents. Now, every president has a different style. When I came in, it was Nixon. And the president's daily brief was legal size paper. And it was stapled at the top because he was a lawyer. And that's the way he was used to getting his information. For a while there under Colby, we actually produced something that looked like a newspaper because the clients downtown were used to reading the Wall Street Journal and they had the little things down the side, summarizing up and the articles on the inside and that sort of thing. We've had periodic intelligence uh, uh, periodicals that dealt strictly with economic issues. Clinton administration, that was very big. PDBs sometimes had something called snowflakes, which were basically just information items that summed up in a sentence what some world leader was doing. Okay, so, you know, uh, the prime minister of whatever is, is going to uh, face a confidence call this week, such such a date. The idea being that uh, when the president's national security advisor might want to make a call or something that, depending on how it goes, or, you know, whatever they need to do with it. And then there were kind of the current intelligence things. And there was generally something in the back of the book that ran over a page that looked at an issue more deeply, <laughs> page and a half, two pages. <laughs> You mentioned the the PDB there and and speaking to the president or president-elect. I mean, this is something that most of us only ever see in the movies or on TV. What's it like to be the person that's standing there delivering the information? Well, nervous at first, uh, (laughs) uh, but I've had the great fortune, the great honor of sitting one-on-one with four different presidents, Jimmy Carter, Bush 41, Clinton, Bush 43, I retired in 2005. What I found in every case is they are very nice gentlemen, okay? People below them tend to be kind of angry and territorial, 
But the guy <laughs> at the top, in my experience, has been very accommodating. I, I, I met Jimmy Carter after he lost the election. He was going to have a trip to China and Russia, and being a, a former president, they have access to intelligence, and he wanted an intelligence briefing on China and Russia before he went. Because I was head of China at that time, uh, I and my Russian counterpart flew into Atlanta, Georgia, got in a car, drove to Plains, which is to hell and gone from anywhere. The instructions were pretty simple. Uh, uh, you stop at the Secret Service post. It's the first house on the left past the only stoplight in town. So stop there. Secret Service puts in the car. Drive us up to the very modest Carter house. I say, what do I do? And he says, well, go ring the doorbell. So I go trotting up, <laughs> ring the doorbell, um, expecting another Secret Service Sorry, guy or you know a, a staff page. person. And who opens the door but the president, President Carter. I said, hello, I'm, I'm Marty Peterson. We're here to do the, the, the briefing for you. President Carter looks at me and he says, uh, you guys come down today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fly into Atlanta? Yeah, yeah. Drive straight through here at the planes? Uh-huh. Would you like to use the bathroom? I said, yes, Mr. <laughs> president. <laughs> He was, he was so kind. Um, uh, my father came from Denmark, immigrant from Denmark, mother from Norway. And he asked about us at the end of this thing. He said, tell us about your history. And I said, well, my father's never going to believe that his son sat down with the president of the United States. And Jimmy Carter said, I can fix that. And he went and got his personal stationery and wrote a note to my father. Wow. Saying how much he enjoyed meeting his son that I carried back. Before we left, he showed us... Uh, the work he was doing for Habitat for Humanity and, and the rest of it. So the private person is sometimes very different than the public person. <laughs> and I remember reading in Robert Gates's book, that he From the Shadows, he yeah. he did he described Jimmy Carter as I may be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that he said Jimmy Carter may well be the the most intelligent president we've ever had. Would you agree with that? I don't know about that because I've got, I've got a small pool. I did read Gates's book. I think he also gives Jimmy Carter great credit for putting in place the effort to contain the Soviets after Afghanistan that Reagan built on. And I know Jimmy Carter's reputation was very weak on, on foreign policy and all of that. You need to read the Gates book to understand the contribution that this man actually teed up for Reagan. If I had a favorite, it was... George Herbert Walker Bush, who is the most gracious man I think I've ever met. When I did the first briefing for him, he was actually vice president. I, I came back and asked me how to go. And I fine. You know, we talked about China. And about three weeks later, I get a call from the director's office saying there's a small package up here for you. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I go up and I open it up, and it's a set of vice presidential cufflinks and a tie clap and a personal note written. By the vice president. And he did this for everybody. He was just a man who was public service. The private person is not always the same as the public person, I guess. <laughs> and I feel like I could speak to you for hours, Marty, but I am <laughs> mindful of you. <laughs> I'm mindful of your time. Um, I guess one of the things that occurred to me was how do you make sure that they're not just fashioning the world in their own image in some way? Because even historians, right? If you read, if you read historians from a hundred years ago, they sound like historians from a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> how, how how do you you know 
make sure you get the world as it essentially is, as opposed to through the cultural mores and biases of an analytic community? That is a challenge, and I don't think we always do it very well. I have some strong views on this that I won't share about certain types of analyses that I don't think hold up very well. There is a review process. So an analyst writes something, it goes up to his supervisor, goes through the division chief, and at one point I would look at it. When I was associate deputy director for intelligence under John McLaughlin and then uh, uh, Winston Wiley, I was often the last set of eyes on the PDB before it went to the print shop. And I would look at it and I'd start asking questions. I don't understand this. How did we get to here? And more often than not, there was there was logic to it and the analysts could explain it, but it didn't come through in the writing. And so I would kick it back and say, you know, okay, you know, the, the person that's reading this is very, very intelligent, but they're not an expert. And they don't have your background. We've got we to make this easier to absorb. In terms of bias, God only knows we all have it. I'm no exception. And, and if they were to allow me into the archives at CIA and I went back and read some of the things I, I, I wrote, I'd probably shudder. Uh, I think it comes down, and this is something I came on rather late in my, my career. The key is really understanding or, or developing the ability to look at the world through the other fellow's eyes. And where we go wrong, I think more often than not, is we don't understand how the other fellow sees the world. And, and it's not just the political stuff. It, it's economic actors. It's military actors, military policies, and that sort of thing. What's driving them? Unless we have a grip on that, then, then we're really kind of driving blind. And one of the tragedies, I think, of Iraq WMD is, and this is another key point about intelligence, we asked the wrong question. A key to being a good analyst and a good manager of analysts is knowing that you're asking the right question. And if you take a look at Iraq WMD, effectively, the question that they were asking in the NIE is, what's the evidence that he's got a program for continuing development of weapons of mass destruction. You ask that, what do you do? You go off and look for evidence that he's got a continuing program. You've got a bias in there already. If you would have asked, how strong is the evidence that he's got a continuing program for Iraq, WMD, you come out in a different place. And if you read that full NIE, all 90-some pages of it, although uh, heavily redacted, not the unclassified one, but the redacted one. There's a lot of uncertainty in there. They were very frank about what they knew and what they didn't know and that sort of thing. The trouble is that when they started boiling it down to key judgments and then a presidential summary, the natural thing happened. Judgments got firmer. All the uh, nuances went out of the argument. And so it went from pretty complex picture to slam dunk. Were there any particular, other than training a whole generation of analysts, <laughs> <laughs> are there any other like things that you're particularly proud of or there, were there moments that, that caused you particular headaches or mm. other things looking back on your career that, that mm. might be interesting to, to cast their gaze upon? My work that I did and I supervised on Asia, uh, 
I'm proudest of. My greatest achievement, I think, is mentoring the individuals that I mentored. And I probably wouldn't have said that halfway through my career because I didn't realize how important it was. I was doing it, but I didn't fully appreciate the significance of that. And I benefited from some great mentors myself. One was a high school English teacher that taught me how to write short, crisp sentences. Uh, Dr. Joe that I mentioned, uh, my professor at Arizona State, who uh, cultivated my interest in Asia and guided me on to uh, the East-West Center. My Chinese language teacher at CIA, she taught me more about China just through those language lessons and our conversations than I learned in any classroom ever. And I had a mentor. I was a good officer. I wasn't an intelligence officer until I worked for Tom. And Tom was quite a character, very demanding, but very professional. I benefited greatly, greatly from that. If I had one problem that really bothered me, and one that still kind of worries me today, Andrew, as I look at Asia and that sort of thing, it's still North Korea. I worry about where China is going and that sort of thing. Chinese you can talk to and that sort of thing. Uh, the North Koreans you can talk to too. But uh, every administration that I dealt with always was going to come in with, we're going to fix the North Korea problem. So far, I guess we're, we're six administrations or something I dealt with. Or something. We're 0 for 6. And I don't think Obama fixed it. Certainly uh, uh, the last one didn't. I don't have much hope here too. It's just a... It's just a really, really difficult problem. There was a lot of division and anger in the community uh, over North Korean issues. I think one of the things I'm, I'm proudest of as I look back is that my team led led the charge and finally convinced the uh, uh, community and the administration that North Korea was building a bomb. There were elements in the community that didn't want to believe that and, and took great exception to it. But telling somebody they, they've got the bomb doesn't do anything toward helping them how to deal with it. So I guess it's a, it's a half victory at, at that. Just to finish off, where do you see intelligence analysis going? And, and then opening it up even more, where do you see uh, the intelligence community going or intelligence in general? Okay. I retired in 2005, but I continued to do some consulting up until like three years ago. Okay. So all I really have is an impression, and that's what it is. I have no data, okay? There are two things that really concern me, leaving aside things like organization and structure and, and all the other. One is an old problem, and that's leaks. A core belief of mine has always been that we serve in silence. And it really bothers me when I see in press reports and that sort of thing, unnamed intelligence professionals. When people agree to cooperate with U.S. intelligence, when they agree to commit treason and they put their lives at stake, we have a moral obligation of the deepest sort to protect them to the best of our ability. And so when I see things like WikiLeaks, and some of this other stuff where people's lives are put at risk, it's really troublesome to me. The leak problem does not seem to be getting better. And if anything, seems to be 
worsening. The second thing that really concerns me, and this is a product, I think, or a consequence, particularly since 9-11, intelligence and intelligence analysis in particular is much more likely these days to become the target or subject of partisan politics. Politicization? Yeah, not by the analysts that are doing it, but by cherry picking or spinning or, or whatnot. And if you want a professional intelligence service, and I think the people that we serve and have served in every administration really do have great respect for the intelligence that they get. They read it. They get angry at it. They push back at it. That's good. That's good because it tells me that what we're saying and doing has an impact. They're reading it, and we got to do a better job of convincing them that, 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 that we're right. But when it becomes something to use for short-term political advantage, then I think it makes it harder for that professional and ethical standard to hold in the community. Now, I, I, I'm an old man. Uh, I may be overreaching here. Back in my day, when I walked barefoot through the snow to do finished intelligence, it was all different. <laughs> uh, but those two trends are something that I think need to be watched. And I hope my, uh, my concerns are uh, exaggerated, Andrew. Well, thanks ever so much for uh, taking time to speak to me. Is there anything that you think is really important for listeners to hear to understand your story that we haven't touched on? I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job, but maybe there's <laughs> maybe there's maybe there's something that you can no, think of. I, I, uh, uh, <laughs> I think we've covered the waterfront. We uh, probably depleted my small jar of wisdom. Well, there's this Memorial Day coming up. We honor our veterans. I'm one. We honor police and firefighters and first responders that put their lives at risk to protect us. What I'd ask the listeners to do is also include in that list those Americans that serve in the shadows. They're out there alone, one-on-one, -on -one, putting their lives at risk. When I joined CIA, the Memorial Wall probably had 30 stars on it. It's more than 130 now. I don't know what the number is. It's a small agency. They're out there trying to do their best to provide the information that our policymakers and our leaders need to keep us safe. Kind word, kind thought, always welcome. Thanks ever so much, Marty. It's been great speaking to you. I've enjoyed it. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.